We have genius and beauty everywhere. There are ideas and values all around this country that need that highlight, that need that power, that need to see the light of day. My hope is that we can uncover that. And so my biggest hope mm. is that we can figure out a way to, to bring people together and, and yeah. lift those ideas up. Welcome to The Race to Social Justice, a podcast that explores the myriad racial and social challenges facing the modern world with your hosts, Kiva White and John Kepner. Thank you for being part of the courageous conversation because when it comes to combating social injustices in America, it is not about being confrontational. It is about being conversational. Good to see you, John. How are you, sir? I am well. Good to see you too, Kiva. Awesome. Well, welcome everyone to our Race to Social Justice podcast series. I am Kiva White, and as you can see, I am the black guy. And I'm John Kepler. I'm the white guy. Kiva and I share a love of the letter K, K for Kiva, K for Kepler, and K for knowledge, what we try to impart in these podcasts, what Kiva calls the K factor. Yes, yes. And the goal of our podcast is really to continue to promote racial and social equity and justice through honest, even sometimes difficult conversations, and what we call our courageous conversations. You know, John and I have found these uh, discussions with each other to have deepened over our years of knowing each other, and re really has allowed for us to gain a greater understanding of racism and a wide range of other forms of social inequities and our personal responsibilities in that regard. And that really led us to invite guests to share their honest experiences and learnings around these issues. And we really hope that these conversations will help our listeners and viewers and even our guests along their journeys of personal discovery. So uh, if you enjoy our discussions, please subscribe to uh, click the subscribe button at the bottom and, and continue to uh, receive our, our podcast. So, John, who do we have as our guest today? Well, today we're going to build bridges with uh, Nisha Anan. And I'm, uh, I cannot do a better introduction than, than what uh, Lisha, uh, Nisha has written about herself uh, on the on her website, Nisha Anand is a boundary buster, common mm. ground creator, nonviolent culture creator, outside the box experimenter and national leader for social and racial justice. Her TED talk, which I hope everybody will listen to, uh, The Radical Act of Choosing Common Ground was viewed by over 1 million times in the run up to the divisive 2020 election. Once a grassroots activist Arrested in Burma for pro-democracy demonstrations, Nisha is known today as a leader in cultivating unlikely and unconventional partnerships to create change. Having studied under mentors like CNN commentator and New York Times bestselling author Van jo Jones, and watching movement organizations rise and fall, she now pushes changemakers to dream bigger, design more inclusive movements, and experiment at scale. Uh, as DreamCorps CEO, Nisha guides the team of, a team of storytellers, organizers, and policy experts working at the intersections of criminal justice reform, green economics, and tech equity, and we're going to dig into what those are, to create a better future for all. Nisha is the mother of two teenagers and a great Dane. So welcome, welcome, Nisha. Yes, welcome to the show. Great, great to have you with us. Um, and, and I'm going to start... At your beginning. Okay. I love to hear 
and and some of what we're going to talk today does does uh, uh, is covered in your TED talk. But I think to set the stage, I'd love for you to tell the story about your um, your parents, grandparents. You know that that you tell at the beginning of the TED talk because uh, yeah. I think it really is compelling. It's a compelling part of your story. Sure. You know, um, I'm glad you brought it up. I don't always talk about it because it's become such a part of who I am. I didn't even realize that that was who I was until I sat down to tell that story uh, for the TED Talk. But my parents are immigrants to this country. They came from India and I was born here. And my dad was born in 1945, right before the partition. And the partition was when uh, the British colonialists left India um, after you know a very successful movement of folks from India. And when they left, there was a lot of infighting about what kind of country India would be. Would it be, you know, a multiracial, multi-religious, multi-sector of, you know, environment, or there were some divisions that were there that were very real. And instead of dealing with the legacy of colonialism and divide and conquer, which is often the legacy left in these post-colonial nations, they just drew a line. They called it the partition. And they said, okay, mm. this side is now Pakistan. This side is now India. We're out. And they left. And uh, my parents were Hindu and they were living on what now became the Pakistan side of the border. And in India, especially in that northern region, Muslims that were on the India side were persecuted, as were Hindus on the Muslim side. And it led to the largest forced migration in human history, people crossing the border and trying to get to the other side. And my family was was trapped in that. And during that time, and I grew up hearing the story over and over again, my dad was just a baby, he was like two or three years old. During that time, my parents were forced into hiding. And I was told the story of this one, one time when some roaming militias came to the house looking for any Hindus and asking if there were any Hindus hiding inside. And my father, saw the, so the story goes, started crying. Mm-hmm. And my grandfather, because they had six children at that moment, was wondering what they needed to do. Should I sacrifice this child to save the whole family? And that's actually the decision he made. And my grandmother started shaking him. And at just the right moment, he stopped crying. And he's alive today because of that. And my family's alive because of that. And I grew up hearing that story. And it sounds as dramatic. Every member of the family that tells it shakes and cries. And it was such a part of my growing up. But what I didn't realize was something else that came to me later when we were traveling in India. And and someone was telling me the story was, obviously, it was a Muslim family that was hiding him. Those were his neighbors. And then my father told me this other part of the story, that at one point when they were being searched again, that family swore on the Quran, they swore on their holy book that they weren't hiding any Hindus. Because before the partition, these were their neighbors. Yes, they didn't have religion in common, but they were part of that same community. They were doing the same things. They were fighting the same battles against the British colonialists. In that moment, when you were allowed to hate your neighbor, in fact, kill your neighbor, or uh, any other number of things that was happening during that partition and that great migration, this family said our shared humanity is more important than our religious differences. And they hid my family at great cost to themselves. They swore on their holy book, but they did that thing that um, seems impossible right now when we're talking about the polarization. It was worse then. It was a life or death choice. And they did that for my family. 
And that's how I came to be, how my parents, my dad, obviously it's a happy end to the story. You know, I, I'm here today, but that understanding of our shared humanity is such a part and, and my culture is not unique. This isn't just India. These are stories all over the world that show that under the hardest circumstances, people can come together and do what's mm. right. Is, is, is that where that sounds like to, that, that's such a compelling story. And it, is that where the foundation for your, your theme of common ground is that tell us, does that tie into where you talk a little bit about that common ground? Cause I think I, I heard when you, as you were sharing the story about the folks who hid your family that was Muslim and, and the common ground was humanity. Share a little bit more about how did you come up with this, this, this philosophy or theme of common ground? You know, I think that this has to be a part of it that I didn't really realize until I started doing this work when I was a young radical activist. And this was despite my, uh, you know, my dad who immigrated to this country, he was an engineer. He wanted a better life for his kids. And I certainly think that like most good Indian fathers, he was hoping I'd be, you know, an engineer or a lawyer or a doctor or something, or, you know, at least the other side of that was, you know, marry an engineer or a lawyer or a doctor and neither, none of those things were in my personality uh, growing up as an American kid. I had no interest in medicine and I certainly wasn't going to make my life's ambition to marry rich and be pretty. That, that just wasn't who I was. So I was rebellious from a young age and it was kind of any cause spoke to my heart. I felt like the underdog. This was Atlanta. I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia in the eighties, very much black and white South. And I was a misfit. I didn't quite fit in anywhere. And my strategy was either, you know, become angry about it and just be a misfit and an outcast and feel, you know, the way a lot of us do. I certainly felt that. It's not that I didn't feel that. But I also, my strategy was to fit in everywhere. And I think I cultivated that from a young age, um, being able to be part of any group because I didn't have one group. I think that's a superpower. I think it's a superpower a lot of first generation kids have, um, in fact, is this ability to blend and be many things at many different times. That mm -hmm. code switching for first generation kids is it's natural. I was the literal bridge between the old world and India and the new. I could explain the cultural elements to my family that they couldn't understand and uh, explain my family's needs to my friends, like why I couldn't do the certain things that they could do. I grew up being that translator, but I also was just so rebellious and um, so much for the underdog. I didn't want anyone else to be left out and left behind. So my younger years as an activist, um, I was a bit of a hellraiser for sure. I've been arrested over a dozen times for civil disobedience. I led the protest in marches and, um, you know, yeah, I was arrested one time. It was in 1998 in the military dictatorship of Burma. I was sentenced to five years in jail at, at that point. They deported all of us um, after a very short time, a week in prison. So I didn't serve that five-year sentence, but obviously it was a big part of who I was. So I, I could have had one path where I stayed on the outside protesting. But I learned, I have a lot of lessons that I learned that realized over the years, I wasn't making the change I wanted to make. It's an important part of our ecosystem. You need the loud voices on the outside that are calling attention to the biggest injustices. That's important. But you also need part of that same ecosystem of social change. In my opinion, you also have to have the bridge builders. You have to have the people who are willing to expand 
so that I'm not just talking to the same community that has the same beliefs as me, which is often what the protest community is, that's necessary. You need people who are going to say, I'm going to take that ethic, the values, the progress I want to see in the world and figure out how to expand the circle that that includes. Remember, I don't want anyone left out and left behind. So the circle I want to draw is the biggest circle possible. Who can we bring along in this change? How can we make the future work for absolutely everybody? And that's the work I found myself on because I, after a certain amount of time, you want to see a result. (laughs) And, um, and so that's, that's kind of the path I was on. And I think I look back now and it's all part of that same story. Yeah. Yeah. So, so why were you in Burma? What, yeah, what was going on back for, then? And, 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 and is there something that that led you to believe that protest wasn't as effective as effective as bridge building? But well, why Burma? Sure. So as I mentioned, I was an activist for any cause. There are a lot of like circumstantial things in my life that ended up having a big impact. Like I joined the high school debate team because the guy who talked about it was cute. And then it became a huge part of my life. And uh, similar about how I ended up in a jail in Burma was the I ran the I ran the animal rights group on campus. And the only other active group that was actually doing something was the Free Burma Coalition. They were in a military dictatorship. Um Every voice for democracy had been arrested. Aung San Suu Kyi, who won in in 88, her party won in 88, um, was under house arrest. The National League for Democracy was never allowed to to take office. And it was a pretty brutal regime. And I had the opportunity to go to Thailand and visit the border between Thailand and Burma and meet people who were part of this. And again, it was an active group at my campus. I wanted to learn. So I went to Thailand with a group of students and we met up with a woman there, uh, Debbie Stothard. She runs a group. She still does. This was 1998. Um, Alternative ASEAN. And their, their idea was to put pressure on other nations that were in the economic block of ASEAN to, for Burma's human rights abuses. So I cared about this cause. There's a military dictatorships, there's huge political repression, but there's also a lot of ethnic repression as well. The uh, ethnic Burmese were persecuting everyone in the border regions that was of different ethnicities. It spoke to who I was and my story and, and I wanted to get involved, but Debbie was putting together a group of 18 international activists from around the world Thailand, Australia, uh, Singapore, um, Thai, you know, and some folks from the U.S. to go in and do this action. And the action was just handing out leaflets that said, we are your friends from around the world. We support your hopes for human rights and democracy. That's all it said. But in a military mm-hmm. dictatorship, that's highly illegal. They had no Internet, no newspapers from the outside mm-hmm. since 88. In 88, when there was a student uprising, the regime killed about 10,000 people and the people they didn't kill fled, were imprisoned, um, are living in the border regions. And so on the 10 year anniversary of that massacre, we went in and handed out the leaflets and all 18 of us were arrested. We didn't know that we were arrested in our groups of three. And um, a week later we were, uh, we had a sham trial it was all conducted in Burmese. I didn't understand a word of it that said we were sentenced to five years. Um, and then we got out, we were deported. And the person who came, and I swear the story is almost going to end. I realize I've been talking about it for a while, but the good. person that came from the United States, because we didn't have 
ambassador there at the time. Since 88, since the massacre, we had downgraded our diplomatic relations there, which meant there was no ambassador. There was a bunch of U.S. diplomatic officials, but not one, an ambassador. And the head of the Human Rights Commission in Congress came all the way to Thailand to help get us out. And his name's Representative Chris Smith. He's a Republican a congressperson from the state of New Jersey. He's still in office and he flew across the country mm. to try to get us out. Now, I was a radical college activist. I had piercings, short, spiky hair, all of that. And I was going to sit next to this U.S. representative on the plane ride home and tell him all the things that we disagreed on. I was going to talk to him and try to convince him on a whole number of things. I thought it was my duty. And in fact, when I sat next to him, he opened up the conversation to ask about other places where I cared about human rights abuses. We had a long plane ride. And on that plane ride, we found a lot of common ground. There was a lot of stuff he cared about. And even though at that moment, I thought he was the man and he was a Republican, so he was on the opposite side of everything I believed in. We had so much in common that it really opened my eyes to what can be done. If I wouldn't be willing to have a conversation with him or other activists around this issue, couldn't have a conversation, he wouldn't have come over there. That pressure from the U.S. was important to get us released. And I think that really was the main thing that switched my course of action and how I wanted to talk to people and who I wanted to be in the world. And not that I don't think protest works. I think it's absolutely necessary to move the conversation. But there are not a lot of people willing to do the other side of it. Um, and yeah, that was thought, okay. You've connected a lot of dots there. That's yeah, really cool. yeah. Um, I hear I hear activism, and you know your actions, but I also hear in in your in your you sharing the importance of allyship and how you aligned yourself. You know, you made it. You made a pers- You know, you made a meaningful effort to sit next to that politician to to kind of share with him and get get him to hopefully become an ally to help you in some of the things that you are trying to do in terms of bettering society. So it's not only just, you know, being, you know, activating your, your level of activism, but you, like you said, you protesters are needed, but you also need to have those strategic relationships to get a lot of the work done. That's not, you know, you need foreground and forefront um, activism. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah. So picking up on that, Nisha, um, Take us through your education training and your career development. Like, how did you like take us through your, you know, your, your you know, your trajectory? Um, you shared a little bit about how, you know, your activism part, but take us a little bit through your education and training and your career development up until. Yeah. The well, you know, I briefly mentioned it, but actually, I think high school debate was a pretty formative experience for me. Having to debate either side of an issue Um, whether you believed in it or not, gives you a huge insight into how the other side thinks. You have to be able to argue it and win your debate. It's a a competition. I think that was a big part of my life. I spent all my summers in high school at debate camp, so super nerd, um, in places like Iowa and North Carolina, just researching uh, for the topic that year. Um, The type of debate I did, there's just one topic for the whole year. So I knew the ins and outs of those subjects. It's really formative. And I went to college and continued that um, when I realized that I want to be that good on the stuff I care about. I want to stay on my side of the issue. 
And I studied um, international studies and women and gender studies in undergrad. And I was at American University in DC where they also offered one of the only back then master's programs in international peace and conflict resolution. Wow. So I had a lot of classes. I went straight into the master's program. My advice to any other kids, take some time off before you go straight in. I think you'll get a lot more out of it with uh, some life experience. But I went straight in and I did learn a lot. And I thought, you know, maybe I'd be a hostage negotiator um, in the international stage. And, you know, I took a lot of conflict resolution classes. And I think that's where I learned a bit of what you said at the top of this around courageous conversations that understanding people's motivations and that people end up being the way they're being, not because they're good or they're evil, but because of the circumstances of how you grew up gives you your view on the world. It absolutely does. And that's fascinating. And it's also educational. And so I got my master's in international peace and conflict resolution. I was in that program when I was arrested in Burma. And so when I came back from Myanmar, I, I should say. Back then we called it Burma. So I slip into that quite a bit. But um, when I came back from Myanmar, I had an opportunity to travel a lot and speak about the cause a lot. And it propelled me to, it was a big news story. And I had a lot of opportunities after that. And so I think I grew up a little fast and I took the first job that was interesting for me. Um, but I learned a lot. I worked at the War Resisters League, which is an international um, pacifist organization that's been around since World War One, I, I believe. So a lot of uh, people who resisted fighting and draft resistors and pacifists, and I was the national field organizer. So I was just a community organizer, pre-internet, really, traveling around the country, organizing our lo local chapters against militarism. And um, and from there, you know, I, I jumped. I jumped at a few different mm -hmm. opportunities. And uh, so that's the background. You asked like how I got there. I yeah. just looking for the next Good thing. journey. Yeah. That's awesome. So all of this is in you. It seems like it's, it's, it's rooted in your, your fabric of, of being. It's in your blood. It's in you. And it really resonates. I, I did have the opportunity to watch a TED talk and it just it was just phenomenal. Just phenomenal. I could tell by your passion you. uh, for the work that you do. Yeah. It's awesome. So I'd like you to talk about the philosophy behind common ground and the the overall approach. But the way I'd like to lead into that is to say that um, the other day I sat down and wrote right off the top of my head, 10 things that were bothering me about the world, mm -hmm. the big issues. And, and I, I stopped at 10, you know, I, <laughs> And, and they're all big issues. Um, you as an advocate have focused on three big issues. Mm. I, I referenced them in, in the lead-in. Um, and so as you, as you talk to us about not only the philosophy and the approach to common ground, could you also cover, I mean, I, I'm, I'm big on focus. You know, I think focus is important. So I think maybe that's, that's where you're coming from. But why were those three issues the ones you selected? Sure. To, to, to be an advocate for. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's the approach to common ground. I think that I come at it from two ways. I think one, it's strategic. It's kind of the only thing that works right now. If you wait for 
in the last 10 years, if you wanted to get a piece of legislation across in Congress and our federal government, you could not do it without bipartisanship. If you waited for everything that you want, like the Green New Deal, for instance, which is everything I want, I'd love to see that pass. We got nothing on police brutality. Um, there was a moment in that summer of 2020 after George Floyd's murder, where you had people who had never been interested in talking about police reform, willing to talk about it. And we asked for everything and we got nothing, nothing, not a single bill passed in that year because we were holding out for everything. And so I think there's a way in which strategic you have to, if you want something done, you have to be able to work with folks from different sides and different parts of the, it's, it's kind of a strategic thing. But for me, I also come at it because it is a moral thing too. If I were to design, uh, it's also the best policy. I'll start with the, it's also the best way to get at a policy. In green, for instance, when we're looking at climate, if I were to design a policy that's just close to me, I live in California, if I were thinking about what's the most important green policy I can pass right now, I would think about drought. I'd think about fires. I'd think about electric vehicles because I'm here in California and Berkeley. That's what I know. But if I don't expand and talk to the farmers who are also on the front line of climate change in the middle of America, I'm not going to design a solution that's good for this country. It'll be good for some people, not for all. Yeah. And, you know, to me, that means you have a better set. So one, it's strategic. It's the only thing that you can pass. Two, you're going to get a better set of ideas if you build a big table. But third, it's it's the right thing to do. No one, no one should be left out and left behind. The future I want to design includes all of us. And that means, yes, the folks that have been hurt first and worst and the ones that are closest to the problems, they do have to be at the center of designing it. Because too often when you design it, it'll leave them out at first thought. So we do put equity first and foremost in all of our projects. The reason why criminal justice, climate, and tech equity, to me, these are uh, big issues that can have, no one believed that we could have bipartisan criminal justice reform, and now it's seen as a given. But when we started that process almost 10 years ago, everyone was like, you are completely like lost it. There's no way you're gonna get bipartisan agreement on that. And I said, well, can we at least try? Because what I've been doing the 10 years prior, I've gotten nothing. and. I know we can do it on climate. In fact, we already are building a pretty large bipartisan coalition of folks that have ideas we can agree on um, to start. And on tech equity, there is so much desire from the companies that are designing the future, the tech companies that are coding and building the apps in the world we're all going to live in. There's so much desire for them to hire diverse talent and therefore get diverse ideas. They just are really lost in how to do it. Um, and need some partners that will think about how important it is. And so across these three areas, we thought there is massive room for change and massive impact. And I also feel if we can demonstrate on these issues, and I can talk you through some of the wins, if we can demonstrate on those big issues that you can get it done, there's nothing that can stop us from getting it done on the small issues. And so to my staff, to my team, every day, everything they do, is this bringing people closer together or driving them further apart? Whether they're gonna write a tweet on social media or they're gonna write a bill that's gonna get passed at the state level or federal level, 
they have to really think, is it bringing us closer together? Is it including the biggest table possible? And is it centering that equity piece? Then yes, that's something DreamCore can get behind. Um, and all of the initiatives actually, to give you the little behind kind of the inside baseball side of it is Green for All, our DreamCore tech program, which was Yes We Code uh, formerly, and our criminal justice program were all founded by Van Jones, our founder. Um, at different times in his career, but they all have that tenant in play is that there are unlikely allies who want the same outcome as you. They might be coming at it for different motivations. They might be looking at it from a very different angle. They don't have to share our motivations, but they want the same outcome. And from there, we can work together. And so that's kind of how he looked at the opportunity when he built these initiatives. And then I was lucky to come and, and put them all under one roof. Wow. Well, it might make sense for you to talk about one of those, the um, um, justice reform uh, and how that, you know, what's the story behind how that legislation changed and uh, things and um, screw getting, you know, a better society. Yeah. When I interviewed for this job with Van, it was actually in the interview and he had asked, he had told me that we were going to pass bipartisan criminal justice reform. And I said, that sounds like an oxymoron because those words had never, like all the other doubters, um, I had been on the streets fighting against police brutality, against the death penalty. I've been arrested on these issues um, and different criminal justice issues as that young activist. I had never seen any Republican. In fact, one of the times was outside the Republican National Convention in 2000. So I had never actually seen um, participation from the right on this issue. And he at that moment was on a TV show called Crossfire and Newt Gingrich was his counterpart. Crossfire's had a few iterations, but he actually got to be one of the hosts before it was canceled one time. And him and Newt had been talking about it. And Newt was the designer of the 1994 crime bill that ushered in that wave of mass incarceration. He stood behind mm -hmm. it, three strikes laws, mandatory minimums, a lot of the evil thing that spiked our incarceration movement, he was behind. He was Speaker of the House at that time. Mm -hmm. But um, he saw what we saw, but a little differently. From his view and from the view on the right, there were three parts of the Republican coalition that had motivation to change it. The fiscal conservatives, and this is what Van walked me through at the interview. The fiscal conservatives saw taxpayer dollars that they were going to have to raise every year, which they did not like, going to a system that had bad outcomes and no results. The prison system. The prison system, yeah. right? Taxpayer dollars. Very costly. Yeah. Not very good results, right? Yeah. What kind of like, it is the weirdest incentive that we have in the incarceration industry is that if people come in and they get worse, you get more money. If they go out and recidivate and come back, you get more money from the state. There's no incentive to make people better. And most people get out. And so for the folks who are inside, what are we doing? We're making them worse inside uh, for nothing. So anyway, fiscal incentive for the fiscal conservatives, it's money, taxpayer dollars being you know thrown away. Uh, you have the religious right who cares about second chances and cares about redemption and does not like the death penalty. And they're looking at the system as something that has no redemption, no second chances. And you also have libertarians on the right who already think there's an overreach on um, in incarceration or injustice or in surveillance. They uh, naturally don't like any of the laws that have been 
criminalizing marijuana. And so there are three parts of the Republican kind of coalition who had different incentives to change something in the criminal justice system. So we started there and we brought along some of our folks on the left um, who wanted to see this change. And we worked really hard during the Obama administration. And actually our first bipartisan convening on criminal justice reform was during the Obama administration. Um, Attorney General Eric Holder showed up as well as Republican governors like Rick Perry and uh, Nathan Deal. And it was an amazing event. And we thought we were going to get something done during the Obama administration. And we didn't. Mm. There was a lot of people on the left who wanted more. Like I was saying, all or nothing like Mm -hmm. this doesn't go far enough. Uh, We need, you know, more reform. And you have people on the right, of course, like uh, this is just a jailbreak bill. You're just going to let, you know, folks out of prison and it's going to cause chaos. We couldn't get it through in the Obama administration. When Trump was elected, um, Van asked every single person on the team at that point if what would be needed it, to keep this reform going and actually pass it. What would be needed is working with more Republicans and you need Trump's signature at the end of the day. He has to sign it to get this bill passed. And a lot of our a lot of the folks who have been with us said, no, we don't want to give Trump the victory was one reason. And two, no, the bill doesn't go far enough. Let's wait until we have all Democrats and we'll get something even better. And Van said, if you're on that camp, um, you're not on this team. Quite honestly, on this team, there are people inside that do not care who is on the White House. They just want to come home to their house. We are doing this for the people inside prison who do not need to be there. They have been serving too long for almost nothing. That's who we're fighting for. It's not about Trump. It's not about Democrats. It's not about how many points you win, you know, with folks that are as radical as you. It's about getting people home. And so we continued and we fought and we passed something called the First Step Act. It was a bipartisan criminal justice reform bill in the Senate. And this is during Trump's era. We had... I want to say 97, 93, 89, something very high of support that passed that bill. Um, So not just a little bit of bipartisan support, not like three Republicans. We had almost all 50 sign on and pass this bill. And since that time, uh, about 20,000 people have been released from federal prison over the over the years since that was passed. it's worth the, yeah. yeah. So I was going to say, what's um, the general premise of the of the first first step act? If you just have a, a, a quick it snapshot, introduced what did, yeah, it introduced good time credits so that you could actually okay. have some relief if you had been um, on behavior. It introduced some education programs, which the federal government was really bad at. They had only been offering AA it was like one of the only offerings they had. So it introduced a lot more education, which went along with good time credits. It also helped the crack cocaine sentencing disparity used to be 100 to one. During the Obama administration, it reduced it a bit. This reduced it even more and made it retroactive. Because before, when it was 100 to one, when you would get sentenced for the exact same drug at different rates, um, it didn't, when we reduced it to 18 to one, it didn't go retroactive. So that was one of the big things too. Went retroactive so that a lot more people were eligible right away. yeah, a lot of health, you know, health and age and a lot of things were in that bill that were good. Um, what do we want more of? Mandatory minimum reform 
is something that we really need to deal with. It doesn't make a lot of sense. You have judges and prosecutors all over saying these mandatory minimums are, but it was the first step act. Now we got to do the second step. And right now I should tell you this, because this is (laughs) exciting and going to be very important for your listeners is that we have the equal act, which is a bill that's going to change that 18 and one sentencing finally to -to one-to-one. And it passed the house a long time ago. And my team did the work with a few other uh, organizations to get Republicans on this because there's no reason it shouldn't be one-to-one. And we have 11 Republican co-sponsors. So at this moment, it is filibuster proof. We just need to get it to a vote. And that will be the next one that would make a giant change uh, for the federal prison population. Yeah. So um, some people who are progressive liberals, when they hear the the name Coke, they... say, oh, my God. So talk about the role of the Koch brothers in this. Uh, Yeah, so one, and I'm, you know, I feel really bad because I'm going to get this wrong. There are a lot of different Koch enterprises. And so we were working with um, one of them. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, and I should look up, you know, which one to explain it. But at that po- point, the general counsel was a guy named Mark Holden. And Mark Holden was an incredible advocate for criminal justice reform. He uh, had a personal story about why he got involved with it. And he also saw what we saw, especially from the economic angle and from the redemption angle is where he came at it from. And he really did, you know, Coke does a lot of political advocacy. A lot of things I'm against, especially around climate. But on this issue, they wanted to flex their political muscle to make some changes and make some big reforms. And so it was pretty clear. And I think this is an important part when people ask, how can you find common ground with some of these people who do things you don't agree with, especially at that level? That's to me what democracy should be. I might not agree with you on 99 out of 100 issues, but on that one place where we agree, let's get something done. And so when I come to the table or my dream core team comes to the table, we don't bend and try to be something we're not. In our partnership with Coke, we never once said, oh, no, no, we're not going to you know, ever go. I know you guys feel differently than us on green issues, so therefore we won't talk. That was never the case. This is who we are. This is what we care about. You can count on me to bring my analysis, just like I can count on them to bring theirs. We all have blind spots. For instance, I don't usually think about individual liberty or individual pursuits of, you know, um, wealth is an important piece of who I am. That's Mm -hmm. not bad. Um, It's not bad to have that view. It's just not my first go to. Just like my partners on the right don't think about communities as a whole and how communities are impacted um, first and foremost. Not that they don't care about it. It's just not the first thing that comes to mind. We were raised differently. We have different values. And so those Republican partners like Coke Industries or anyone we're working with, they can count on me to bring that lens, that community lens to be exactly who we are to the table as I can count on them to bring the individual lens. Together, we can actually come up with a solution that will work. And that's what we did. And one of, um, one of the partners there who's now moved on, uh, Jenny Kim, was from that fight became one of the biggest advocates for second chance hiring and also put Coke, Coke um, that level of Coke into that second chance hiring 
And second chance hiring is for folks coming home from prison, Mm -hmm. making sure you do things like ban that box that says, yes, I was a felon and really prioritize the services needed to get folks jobs because that's one of the best indicators when people come home. And she led a lot of that fight to get a lot of the companies that were inside Coke to really make a stand on second chance hiring. A lot of good came from that partnership and that alliance. And, you know, I can't say enough good things about the folks I worked with there. Hmm. Um, Talk a little bit more about tech equity, what tech equity means. This actually, um, this has the best origin story of, and I just told you the newt origin story, which is pretty good, but um, Van Jones, our founder was friends with Prince. Uh, pretty good friends that found each other when he used to run Green for All. Um, Now, nearly 20 years ago, I want to say they became friends. And Van was at Prince's house when the Trayvon Martin verdict came out. And Prince turned to Van and he said, how come it is when you see a white kid in a hoodie, you think, you know, when you see a black kid in a hoodie, you think thug. And if you remember the Trayvon Martin shooting, the defense was he's wearing a hoodie. But when you see a white kid in a hoodie, you think Mark Zuckerberg. And Van said, you know, Prince, um, because of racism. (laughs) And Prince was like, yeah, of of course. You know, I'm sure. But also, what have we done to produce more black Mark Zuckerbergs? And uh, Van Mm -hmm. was like, I don't I don't know, Prince. You know, it's very hard to have conversations with Prince when he when he gets on one. And Prince said, why don't you do something about that? And uh, Van will tell you that, um, you know, he worked for the president, he worked for Obama and he worked for Prince and he's happy to take orders from either of them. But he saw that as an order and he looked into it and he thought, are we what are we doing to get black kids into these jobs that are growing? And at that point, they were predicting a 20,000 job deficit within a few years in the tech industry. And our schools were not teaching coding. It was very few colleges were offering Um, computer science degrees that weren't the elite colleges. We had to have a ton of money. Uh, And I think the status when we started in California, there was not a single black graduate of a computer science program uh, from any of those colleges that year. And so who's creating the technology that we're consuming? Who's building that future? What products are they going to build? They will have so many blind spots if our folks aren't in the room. And so that was how we came at the problem. What do we need to do to get our folks in the good jobs that are coming and in the entrepreneurial like pathway to designing a future that will work for all? Because, you know, when we are in charge of those means and we design something, it's going to be stuff that solves our problems. Um, Those are the blind spots. We have to be in the room in those tech companies to design it. So there are a lot of parts of the problem that we could address. We could start uh, education. We could start at, you know, from a young age, we could start at what they're teaching in high school. We could look at how do you get people into college? We could look at the college programs, but we took the path that would give us the fastest result, which is taking folks that are already partnering with companies that have a lot of jobs to hire and doing what's necessary to recruit, train, and get them into jobs soon. Um, But look, it's still a problem that, we haven't, it's a problem where there are a lot of solutions that are possible. And so I love looking into, you know, each part of that pipeline and you have a lot of companies that want to do this work. So the opportunity is there to make a difference. 
I, I want to jump back to the prison reform for one second because I, I, you know, I have this conversation with colleagues a lot about the legalization of marijuana and the fact that a lot of, you know, now it's a billion dollar, multi-billion dollar industry and a lot of states are ad- adopting not only medicinal, medicinal uh, use, but also recreational use. That's so on one side. And then on the other side of that, you still have people in prison for, for that, that serving, some of them serving life sentences or 25 years of life for, for possession, yes. or criminal yep. possession. So do you know of any effort or any active, like what or any activism or any efforts to kind of help those individuals? Because I, I just, it just, it's a conundrum or it's, it's really confusing for me to, to be able to sit here today to see that some folks are making billions off of something that others' uh, lives have been destroyed. Can Absolutely. Nobody should be in prison right now for a marijuana offense, period. Yeah, that is yeah, low hanging fruit. That is something that everybody on the reform side can agree on. Um, okay. On the federal level, you can see that changing pretty dramatically. State States, though, is where most people are in prison. And so it's going to take legislation at every single state level to change the laws where those are still there. And retroactive and designing those laws is really important. And there are a lot of organizations. I'd say anyone working on criminal justice reform has that in as their a, what they're trying time. to get across their policy. Um, and in some states, it's been successful. But absolutely, no one should be in there for that. What is so what's painful, too, though, is that folks who are in there for marijuana and they shouldn't be, they should come back. Um, they don't get the opportunities to build these giant empires that folks are building right now. And yeah, the jobs part is such a big um, piece of what we need in this country to make sure everyone can succeed and live kind of the life I dream of that freedom and dignity and opportunity for all. And I'm not sure that I can't speak eloquently about what's being done to deal with that disparity when people come out or that disparity in who gets the licenses to yeah. sell um, or to develop, you know, that part of the industry for that state, I, you know, something should be done there as well. I just can't speak as eloquently on that. Yeah. I, I think some equity work needs to be done in that area. I mean, at least in terms of ownership and the licensing part, um, because I mean, this is just my observational research. I haven't seen any, uh, any shops in my community owned by, uh, persons of color. And so I think that's, that's continued to be a huge disparity uh, from that, from, from an economic standpoint and a business owner standpoint. And a buddy of mine, he actually went to one of the CBD, um, they had an open house and how to, you know, fill out the applications and all that. And I, from what I understand, it's a very convoluted process. And it's, you know, whenever I hear that, I, I, I get deterrent, you know, because yeah. some people, most people don't want to go through it. And, you know, or they may not have the education to understand all the legalese surrounding that. And so that's just, I mean, in my opinion, that's another kind of like a barrier to not allow, um, you know, others to, you know, enter into that lucrative industry. So yeah. I just wanted to point that out. Absolutely. And by the time of this podcast, you know, I can send you links to the folks that are doing some of that good I would, work. Yeah. Um, I would love it. There are a lot of folks it. out there. Yeah. Yep. Awesome. Thank you. Well, I'm going to try something that we've not done before, a lightning round. All right. I'm going to give, I'm going to say some words and you give me your immediate reaction in, in, you I know, 10 words. Okay. All right? okay. All right? Oh, I get more than one word. I can say 10 maybe. Oh yeah. You can, you can, okay. you can give a little, you can give one word and a, and a little, 
little explanation. Um, radical common ground. It's not easy to find common ground. You get hate for it. And in fact, it's the harder thing to do. And I think that's the radical action, just dividing, pointing fingers, hating each other. That's easy. Finding a way to actually do something is harder. Mm. Tribalism. Uh, you know, I immediately go back to India with tribalism. Um, the idea that, you know, only me, my people, my folks are the ones that should succeed and have successful lives. Um, I think it's anti uh, the world I want to create. Cast. Ah, that was good. Yeah, yeah cast is a great one. Um, you know, the system that is, you know, I think it's that internal um, part of culture that has separated and divided and ranked who we are as, you know, superior to inferior. Um, in every culture has a caste system. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's just defined differently. Yeah. Uh, shared space for community. Oh, um, shared space for community. Um, I think of, I was drawing it earlier, that big circle. I think too often when we think shared space, it's just for community, just like us. I want to have a shared community space for people just like me. And when I think of that, I want to like draw a giant, giant table. I have one. Go ahead. Equitable distribution of wealth. Yeah, I've been thinking, it makes me think of equitable, equitable distribution of power is something mm -hmm. I've also been toying with. Um, I don't know. There are a lot of ideas out there about uh, equitable distribution of wealth. I think there's a lot of things we haven't done and haven't tried, and we really should. But mm -hmm. equitable distribution of power is also a problem. Mm -hmm. And being scared to talk to people in power or grab some of the power for yourself because power is evil, that's holding us back from fixing some of the wealth problems. We need people in power um, to help fix the, the wealth gap. Thank you. There's a, there's a connection in the two. So thank you for, for bridging mm -hmm. that. Awesome. Last one, choosing love. It's a choice. It really is. Um, when I wake up and choose love, I approach every problem differently. I approach every person differently. Um, wow. There is a lot of love is the center of everything I do. I don't usually lead there in talks because, um, you know, people might write me off as this Bay Area hippie. But I think that when you approach something with love first, you're going to come up with a solution that um, that works. And what's the root of that philosophy? Love? For you, for you personally? Uh, well, you know, I told you I studied international peace and conflict resolution in college. And my specialty was in um, what I studied a lot of was the history of nonviolence and nonviolence civil disobedience. So I studied a lot of Gandhi and I studied a lot of King and they were prolific writers on the topic. And for them, love is not weak. It is extremely powerful. And I think I always looked up to those movements because of how guided by love they were, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. the intentions are so pure that it really is about a better life for everyone. Um, but the modern day version of that is a, 
an activist, author, lawyer, civil rights hero that I like to shout out, Valerie Kaur, K-A-U-R, in her book, um, I'm like, is it on my shelf? See No Stranger. Um, it's about what she calls revolutionary love. It is, to me, an amazing modern day version of those philosophies that really speaks to um, change makers. So that leads, we, we need to wrap up. So that leads uh, me to one final question. And but Kiva, do you want to do you want to jump in with a final question? Yeah, I'm just thinking about um, this word hope. And what what's what's your greatest hope in all of this work that you're doing? What you know, if you was to sum it up, what do, what do you, what what are you hopeful for as an activist? I hope that we can change the way that people come together to solve problems. I really hope that um, we can show the beauty and possibility of what we can create when we do that, when we come together. My, like, we have genius and beauty everywhere. There are ideas and values all around this country that need that highlight, that need that power, that need to see the light of day. My hope is that we can uncover that. Um, and you know, if that's evenly distributed throughout the country, it's just that opportunity that's not. And so my biggest mm -hmm. hope is that we can figure out a way to, to bring people together and, and yeah, lift yeah. those ideas up. Awesome. Another question we'd like to ask our guests is, um, who would you say was your hero? Um, and I, I don't have any parameters on it, right? Nope. <laughs> um, you know, growing up, I um, I told you I was a child of the 80s in the South and um, my parents were divorced. I lived with my father, which was very uncommon then. And um, my parents had taken in when I was, you know, I need to make some of the, my short story shorter. They had taken <laughs> in when I was young, one of the neighbors, uh, Sherry. She was about 10 years older than me. When we lived in New York, she moved with us to Georgia. And when my parents got divorced, she took care of us. And because my dad had to work all the time, she took care of us. And she showed us a lot about love and about parenting that we didn't get when there was kind of that divorce time. And I mm -hmm. think of her as a hero because um, the way she raised her kids is a model for how I raised my kids. And um she was there when no one else was. And that's what I think we all really need. We yeah. really, right now, when yeah. I see my kids struggling, all of their friends with what they've been going through in this pan, from the pandemic on, mm -hmm. I just think about that, that belonging, that needing to be seen and heard and loved is so important. And she definitely taught me that. Wow. Well, that's great. Do you, do you, before I wrap up, do you have any final thoughts for the good of this cause? Um, yes, I think allies are absolutely everywhere. And my advice for that, for courageous conversations and trying to have that conversation with that person you think you can't, is to find the place for agreement because it's there. We don't have to deny their whole argument in order to win ours. You're actually going to agree with parts of their argument and they're going to agree with parts of yours. So I, I always tell everyone that find that one place of agreement, even if it's so small, um, it'll open up that conversation to an unlikely ally. Yeah, and I think you've also 
uh, in your remarks, uh, didn't say it quite this way, but it was something that I tried to do back in my lawyering days when I would be negotiating uh, agreements and so forth. I always tried to put myself in the other person's shoes. What's motivating them? What's going to work for them? And you, you gave some really great examples. Uh, and, and I think you've, you've taken the uh, sort of theoretical and put our heavy duty focus on the practical to get things done. And that, that's, that's, that's one of my big takeaways from this discussion that we need to do. It's not just talking to people that don't necessarily agree with you. It's getting something done as a result of it. So congratulations on it and keep it going. You know, yeah, I got many more questions, but we're out of time for now. Maybe, <laughs> maybe we'll revisit this, uh, you know, months down the road. Thank you for very much for joining us. This is us. great. Yes. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you so thank much. you so much. This was yeah. awesome. So thank you all for listening and joining us for another episode of the Race to Social Justice. We thank our guest, Nisha Anad, for all her insightful wisdom and just, just her compassion for the work as an activist. Uh, and, and thank you, John, uh, for always partnering on these uh, courageous thank conversations. You. Thank you. Yes, this has been another great, uh, another great episode. So again, don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you as we continue to run, walk, jog on this race to social justice. Thank you, everyone. The Race to Social Justice podcast is produced, edited, and mixed at The Dream in Austin, Texas. Visit thedreamrecordingstudio.com for more info.